This week, a discussion on food during the Great Depression, highlighting how families tried to stretch their money and food supply. Iowa State University professor Pamela Reine-Kerberg examines how families use gardening and cheap ingredients to survive. Grandma survived the Great Depression because her supply chain was local and she knew how to do stuff. More after this. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Greetings, everybody. This afternoon, we are going to be starting our discussion of the Great Depression. And what we're going to be doing today is talking about how the Great Depression affected ordinary people. Um, We're going to talk about sort of the nuts and bolts of the situation and the things that people would have experienced in their everyday lives uh, if they were seriously affected uh, by the problems of that decade. Now, I don't normally uh, use images like this, but I'm using this one for a reason. Um, Grandma survived the Great Depression because her supply chain was local and she knew how to do stuff. That's a really important concept, and we're going to come right back to it at the end of class as well. Um, This really is sort of the theme for the day. Now, in terms of what we're going to be talking about, We're going to start with an overview of what the problems of the Great Depression were for ordinary people um, and sort of the depths of the problem. We'll talk about how families tried to cope in terms of their work strategies, um, about the process of asking for help in the case of a disaster like this. We're going to talk about keeping families fed. What did people actually do to try and put food on the table in the middle of a collapse like this? Uh, We'll talk about how it changed America's food habits. And then we'll come to sort of an interesting question. Did anybody starve? Um, What was the real uh, sort of impact of the Great Depression uh, as far as mortality went? But let's start with the grim results of the economic disaster. The Great Depression was by far the worst economic collapse that the United States has ever experienced. The United States had had depressions before. Uh, Some of them had been very, very steep depressions. They had been very serious situations. But the United States had never had a depression that was this long and this deep for so many years. There's a reason why it's called the Great Depression. It was a terrible, terrible economic collapse. And it was terrible in terms of what it meant for average people. Uh, Today, I'm going to be talking about the period from 1929 to 1933. I'm dividing that for a reason. That's because before March of 1933, there was not much of a federal government response to the problems of the Depression. So we're going to be looking at those four years before any sort of major federal aid kicked in. During those four years, the economy basically tanked. By 1933, there was 25% unemployment. That means that 25% of working Americans had no job whatsoever. There was also 25% underemployment. Underemployment means that uh, people with a college degree could only find jobs sweeping floors. Um, It meant that people who wanted to work full-time could only get jobs working part-time. It meant that people had jobs, but those jobs were paying less than they previously had. All sorts of school teachers 
saw their incomes cut by 50% in the first four years of the Great Depression. All of those circumstances are underemployment. So 25% of the population was completely unemployed. Another 25% was underemployed. Now, those numbers don't include people who technically were earning nothing, but were not counted among the unemployed. There were plenty of farmers during this period who were basically earning nothing. There were all sorts of farmers here in Iowa who put their pigs on the train to go to Chicago, hoping that they would get a check back, that their pigs would sell uh, and they would have some income. Unfortunately, a lot of those farmers, instead of getting a check, got a bill. It cost more to ship their pigs to Chicago than those pigs were worth. That's not underemployment. That's not unemployment. It wasn't counted. Um, other things that weren't counted were self-employed people who were earning next to nothing. Lots and lots of people let their insurance policies lapse. So there were insurance agents who had no money coming in. There were doctors and dentists who had no money coming in. Um, you know, if someone had a whole list of bills in front of them, they would choose to pay for food, for shelter, before they would choose to pay the doctor. Because after all, he couldn't put the baby back. And so if that was the bill that was sitting there to be paid, the doctor didn't get paid. So there are all sorts of people earning no income who were not getting paid. And the problem was this wasn't just a year or two. The conditions stayed terrible from 1929 to 1940. On average, during that period, unemployment was 20%. And unemployment was not going to go really below 20% until we get into the lead up to World War II, to American involvement in World War II. So these were very, very hard years with a very high level of unemployment for large numbers of people. The problem also was that if you had money in a bank, you probably lost it because many banks closed in 1931, 32, and 33. And if a bank closed in that era, your money was gone forever. So banks closed. And if you wanted to ask for help, it was really difficult to do so because a lot of city and county governments, uh, a lot of charities also went bankrupt in that time period. And even you know, being poor was not enough. They were going to ask you if you were part of the worthy poor before a charity was going to give you money. So receiving aid generally involved proving that you were a part of the worthy poor, not just needy. Being needy was not enough. That meant that you had to conform to the moral standards of the community and you had to be suffering hardships that could not be construed as being your own fault. So there were a lot of single, never married mothers who would not have been considered for aid because they lived outside of the, the, the moral confines of that society. Their problem could, by local people, be construed as their fault. Uh, so the people who got aid were people who were respectable widows, respectable disabled people, orphans. Uh, people who are temporarily disabled because of something that could in no way be considered their fault. Um, and respectability usually meant going to church, not drinking, not living outside of conventional morality in your community. So just being poor was not enough to get you help in the 1930s. Another issue that we need to keep in mind as we talk about the 1930s is the idea of relative deprivation. A lot of people during the 1930s fell into poverty. They had not been poor at the beginning of the decade, but all of a sudden they didn't have a job. All of a sudden they weren't bringing any money in, and they fell into poverty. Uh, what researchers at the time discovered was how you felt about the problems of the 1930s did not necessarily exactly equal just how poor you were. People who had fallen into poverty felt like the situation was considerably worse than people who'd been poor all along. And those people who fall into poverty, we're going to discover, had some serious problems compared to people who had been poor all along. 
Another concept that you need to remember when thinking about the 1930s is shame. Now, the reason why this is incredibly important is that people who had grown up in the era prior to the 1930s generally believed that if you were unemployed, it was your own fault. If someone was unable to find a job, it was their own fault. Because if you were hardworking, if you were capable, if you were of a good moral standard, you should be able to find a job. The thing was, they had never encountered a depression this deep. There were no jobs. It didn't matter if you were morally upright. It didn't matter if you worked hard. It didn't matter that you went to church on Sunday. There were no jobs to be had in many communities. So a lot of people felt terribly ashamed. They felt like they'd failed. They felt like this problem was personal to them. And that, too, is going to have a serious impact on their experience of the 1930s because they're going to be resistant to asking for help. They're ashamed to ask for help. And there were many, many people who went through this experience who never got over it who spent the rest of their lives feeling terribly ashamed about having been without a job in the 30s for no reason at all. They, they, they had no reason to feel ashamed. But we don't always think in these logical ways when we're faced with a crisis like this. Now, if you were part of a family that was facing a situation like this, uh, you had to figure out how you were going to manage. You had to figure out how you were going to manage if the bread earner in your family was either completely without a job or seriously unemployed. And one of the ways that this happens during the 1930s is that women go out to work. Now, it was very difficult for women to find jobs in the 1930s. Um, it was not the usual path that married women took in the 1930s. Um, African-American women had often had jobs after marriage because of uh, the generally low pay that their husbands got. But most white women in the United States, once they got married, got out of the workforce. Well, the 1930s creates a situation where a lot of these women have to find jobs. But most of the jobs they find are very poorly paid and in traditionally female occupations. Uh, and you know, some of those jobs saw declining income across the 30s. Those women who were school teachers, a lot of them saw their pay cut by 50%. And not only that, by 1933, a lot of towns were giving teachers IOUs, basically telling them, when we have money again, we'll pay you. The problem was that they needed to eat right then. Uh, and so sometimes they had to trade their IOUs at a discount to someone who would give them money. Um, other women did things like work in laundries for 10 cents an hour or clean homes for a dollar a day or less. Um, a lot of women took in borders, which meant taking someone into your home, you cook and clean for them, um, and then they would pay you for the use of your home. Uh, probably about the best you could do was something like one of my grandmothers did, which was work for J.C. Penney's for 25 cents an hour. Um, she worked 25, for 25 cents an hour starting early in the morning, working till late at night. She got an hour off at lunch and no breaks. Um, and that was considered a really good job. So there was no way that she was going to complain about the low wages and the long hours. Um, some women uh, were very fortunate and had secretarial positions. And um, you know, a lot of what I'm, I'm telling you today is based on research I did in Kansas uh, about the 1930s. And one of the Kansas congressmen in about 1933 got a really irate letter from one of his constituents. It was a man writing in uh, in a really disgusted way about a woman who was working for wages in the congressman's office, and he thought that job ought to be given to a man uh, who had a family. And the congressman wrote back, you know, I would employ a man, but I don't know any man, men who can type and do stenography. I have to hire a woman. Uh, and so women who had special skills were able to keep their jobs through the 1930s. Uh, but most women who worked 
had very low wages, working very long hours in positions that largely men didn't want. Uh, things like doing laundry, things like cooking for other people, cleaning for other people. Now, it was a whole lot easier for women to work outside the home if they had no children or if those children were old enough to take care of themselves. Uh, the social convention of the time said that if you were a married woman and if you had children, it was your responsibility to be at home and to take care of them. Uh, and in fact, one of the women who I interviewed about her experiences told me, mothers were frowned on then if their children were put with babysitters. So I simply did what I had to do after my children came. She stayed home. She took care of them. She did not go out to work. Um, another woman told me that she would have loved to go out to work, but the problem was her clothes were falling apart, she couldn't afford a babysitter, and she couldn't afford to get to a job. She lived out in the country. And so there was no way for her to work. She said to me, by the time I would have had extra clothes and hiring a babysitter, I'd be working for nothing. We felt like it would be to our advantage, to the children's advantage, for me to stay at home and patch and sew. And so that's what she did. She stayed at home, she patched and sewed, and did not go out to work, even though her husband at some times was earning as little as $4 a month. So imagine trying to get by on, you know, even in the 1930s, $4 a month was practically nothing. But she couldn't afford to go out to work. She didn't have the clothes. Children also worked, but usually not for wages. Child labor laws in this era made it very difficult for children under the age of 14 to work for wages. So children did other things. They sold newspapers. They shined shoes. Uh, they did jobs, odd jobs for the neighbors. Um, many of them scavenged along the railroad tracks looking for coal and other things that had fallen off of freight trains. Um, they sifted through dumps looking for anything that might be edible or usable. Um, and sometimes they found other ways to make money. Um, I interviewed a really wonderful older man in Dodge City, Kansas, who told me his story about making money as an adolescent during the early 1930s. Um, Kansas still had prohibition, and there were bootleggers that were there in the community. He knew who they were. And you could sell bottles to the bootleggers for five cents a bottle. Totally illegal. But he knew that he could earn five cents a bottle doing this. And so he was busy finding, washing bottles, selling them to the bootleggers. But he also lived at the edge of town. And because he lived at the edge of town, he could see where the bootleggers hid the booze. And then their clients would come out and find it along the fence posts um, and, and take it home with them after they would paid their money. Well, the sheriff would pay 50 cents for any bottle of booze that somebody had led him to. And so this guy was selling the bottles to the bootleggers, then figuring out where they were hiding the bottles and then letting the sheriff know. And so he was making a really nice little sideline for himself out of the bootlegging business. Uh, his wife was absolutely terrified to have me tell this story because she was afraid the bootleggers were going to come and get him. Uh, I thought that it probably wasn't wasn't an issue this many years after the fact. But if he'd gotten caught, he would have been in big trouble. But this was his way of making money through the 1930s. Other families managed in other ways. They doubled up with the family, that, the, the part of the family that was least likely to get evicted from their home, inviting other people to come and, and live with them, sharing the costs of heat and food and housing. Um, other families... Uh, even though they might be living in different locations, also shared the costs. I had grandparents who were living in, in town uh, whose parents were still on the farm. The parents on the farm could not make a living. And so my grandparents, who were making a relatively decent living by the standards of the day, sent home a lot of their money to their families to try and help them keep their farms from going under. There are all sorts of ways that families cooperated together. And then at the other end of the spectrum, people left home. Uh, a lot of men left home when they became part of the long-term unemployed. Uh, what you'll notice about the 1930s is that the divorce rate does not go up. 
The divorce rate, in fact, goes down a little bit. But divorces cost money. The abandonment rate goes up with men who are unable to care for their families leaving home because they feel so ashamed and thinking that their families are better off without them. Uh, what this picture shows is what happened at the other end of the spectrum, and that was young people leaving home. Um, there were as many as a million transients on the road in the middle of the 1930s, and a very large percentage of those were young people under the age of 25 whose families simply could not afford to care for them anymore, and so they, they hit the road and spent a good deal of the 1930s wandering from place to place, looking for jobs, looking for a handout, hoping that somewhere down the road things would be better. Unfortunately, a lot of the time it was not. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. All right, before I move on, does anybody, anybody have any questions that you want to ask at this point? All right. Let's move on to the problem of asking for help. If you were one of these people whose family was completely out of money, there were no jobs to be had, and let's say your extended family could not help you, your option then was to ask for help, to ask a charity or to ask local government for help, Um, going to your city, going to your county. This was not, for a lot of people, a very attractive option because they felt ashamed of being poor and unemployed. Um, There were a lot of people who never could bring themselves to go in and say, I need help. We're not going to manage. And in fact, a lot of this applied to men in particular, uh, men who are no longer able to support their families, who are so deeply ashamed of themselves that going into that welfare office was just too hard for them. Um, What's interesting is I had a number of women tell me my husband wouldn't go in to apply for aid, but I did. The moment the children started going hungry, mothers tended to say enough of this and to go in and to ask for help. And so that was often part of what it meant to be a mom during the 1930s was asking for help for your children. Now, before 1933, before we get a real federal presence in welfare, getting aid was a really personal process in ways that it would not be later. It involved presenting yourself personally, filling out the form, going through a really rigorous examination where people tried to figure out if you were part of the worthy poor or not, whether you were acceptable to get aid or not. Um, Generally, A married man or or a family uh, would be considered appropriate for aid. Single people generally were not, because if they didn't have someone else depending on them, local government simply was not going to help them. Uh, So you had to be part of the worthy poor. You generally had to have a family. And then they would decide how much aid you would get. Um, It was often not a great deal of aid. But getting aid was a very public process because what happened after you got aid was your name went in the paper. This was an era when local governments published every month their bills. And instead of just having one line where it said aid to the poor, it had a whole bunch of lines and it listed by name the people who were getting money. And so everybody knew who in the community was getting aid, which meant you had to be willing to have the whole rest of everybody see your poverty in order to do this, which is why another reason why a lot of people resisted asking for help. Now, this meant that you were also um, open to public criticism because they generally had lists in the newspaper as well of the things that you weren't allowed to buy with your aid. It was called relief, what you weren't allowed to buy with your relief. You weren't allowed to buy pop. 
You weren't allowed to buy candy. You weren't allowed to have a radio. You weren't allowed to have a car. And if your family had any of those, you had to have a really good reason why or you were going to lose your aid. Now, a lot of communities eventually got around this by only giving food to people instead of making, giving them, them money and letting them make their own decisions about how they used it, they began just giving people food. Things like lard and beans and flour, uh, maybe salt pork if you were lucky. Um, just the very basics, potatoes, cabbages, carrots. And that way they could guarantee that the community's money was being spent on things that the community approved of. Now, the amount of money was very, very small. By 1933, about the most that any community could give to an individual family per week was about $2.50. Most charities are out of money. Most communities are out of money. And so $2.50 is about it. And so you know, as you work on your projects, you'll realize that, that that's about as good as it got in 1933, not a lot of money. A research report from a social workers organization said that this was aid to the poor with a vengeance, meaning that it simply wasn't enough money for most families to get by in any good way. Now, aid was generally not available to transients and recent arrivals. Most places had laws that said if you hadn't lived in a community for a year, they were not going to help you. They wanted aid to be available to what they called home people only. And so if you arrived with your family needing help, they would say, wait a year. Or something else that a lot of communities did was to hand the people a sack of sandwiches, put enough gas in their car to get them across the county line, and send them on their way. This was illegal in most places. You weren't supposed to hand off your relief burdens to other communities in this way, but communities did it anyway. Um, they, were, they were pretty desperate by the early years of the 1930s and did not have a lot of money to spend on the poor. Now, if you weren't getting a lot of aid and you didn't have a whole lot of money, you had to find a way to keep your head above water. And keeping your head above water could be quite a trick. Um, a lot of communities, when they started running out of money, started giving families access to land instead. Lots of communities had some undeveloped property. They could afford to buy seeds. And so what they did was hand out people plots of land and a packet of seeds and say, here, grow yourself some food. And there were often more people who wanted that than land was available. And if you didn't keep your plot of land nicely weeded and growing vegetables, you'd lose your plot of land to somebody else who needed it. Uh, also, in little local newspapers, they began running all kinds of articles about how to make your food budget stretch, reminding people that they could, in fact, eat leftovers. Um, I've seen recipes for, leftover, for uh, sandwiches made out of leftover beans. Um, stuffed peppers made out of odds and ends of ham, uh, bread pudding made out of stale bread and old jelly. Uh, none of this sounded terribly appetizing. A lot of it was common sense. Um, a lot of it was stuff that farm women already knew. But there were also other women who'd grown up in town, whose families had more money, who did not in fact know all of this. And so they were providing this information to people who did not necessarily have it. Uh, we've talked before about home economics extension, about uh, home economics trained women who worked for the counties, who taught all kinds of skills. Their services were in really high demand during the 1930s. And they, in many communities, offered free classes, opened them up to everybody so people could learn how to cook cheap meals. They could learn how best to spend their money. Um, again, they were teaching a lot of skills that farm women already knew because they made do and did without all the time. But these particular skills were ones that not everybody had. And so they began providing this kind of information for other people. Now, how might you feed your family if you had absolutely no money? Well, I had one woman tell me that macaroni was always cheap. 
You could buy big boxes of macaroni inexpensively, and her way of making a healthy meal out of macaroni was not cheese sauce. She instead bought whole flats of cans of tomatoes and spinach. And yeah, I can, I can see the faces back there. Um, they would then mix the tomatoes or mix the spinach or mix the tomatoes and the spinach with the macaroni, heat it up, serve it to the family. Didn't sound very good, but you know what? If you're hungry, it's amazing what tastes good. Um, people ate a lot of eggs. Eggs remained a cheap source of protein. Um, I've seen a diary where a farm woman literally fed her family potatoes three times a day. In the morning, they were fried. At lunch, they were mashed. At dinner, uh, gosh, she usually did like baked potatoes or something like that at dinner. And so there was a whole range of potato dishes that she could do based on what the family wanted. Well, not based on what the family wanted, based on what the family needed and based on her ability to imagine what you could do with potatoes. Um, Cornmeal mush. We've talked about cornmeal mush before. Okay, that's boiling water to which you add cornmeal a little bit at a time so it doesn't get all clumpy. Um, you, you stir it up, and when it's nice and thick, you plop it in someone's bowl. If you have money, you put a little bit of butter or a little bit of syrup on there, and you call it breakfast. Well, then you're going to have leftovers. So you pour it in a loaf pan, you let it sit all day, and at the end of the day, you dump it out, you slice it up, and you fry it. And then if you've got syrup or molasses or something like that, you pour that on and you call it dinner. Uh, Believe it or not, you can do the same thing with oatmeal. I've never tried it, uh, but you can do exactly the same thing with oatmeal. And there are a lot of people who had very little money who are feeding their families cornmeal mush or oatmeal three times a day. So just sort of imagine what it would be like to eat that. Um, The same woman who told me about the oatmeal and the macaroni and the tomatoes and the spinach, um, she's the one whose husband sometimes was earning as little as $4 a month. She was about the most impoverished, the person who'd been the most impoverished during the 30s who I talked to. And she said there were times when the only way she could think of to get her kids to eat the same thing day in and day out was that at breakfast time, she would put the oatmeal in a bowl. And at lunch, she'd put it on a plate. And at dinner, she'd put it in a cup and try and fool them into thinking that it was something different. At least it would look different, even if it was the same thing over and over again. But there's all kinds of foods that were served in the same way in the 1930s. Beans. Um, my grandmother said, I, hope, I, I hoped by the end of the decade I would never see another bean again. They had eaten beans, so many pinto beans, over the course of the decade. Cabbage, sauerkraut. Um, we've talked about paste before, right? That you know, during the Civil War, or if you were living on the frontier, you might end up eating paste for dinner in one form or another. Um, one of the forms of paste I've seen relative to the 1930s was called Wisconsin gravy. Wisconsin gravy was either water or milk um, heated up with flour put in it and salt and pepper poured over toast. Paste over toast. If you had nothing else, you had paste over toast for dinner. Uh, they ate weeds. They ate wild food. They gardened. They hunted. They fished. Um, you know, dandelions, when they became available in the spring, were a really important salad ingredient. Uh, they used soup to stretch a lot of these ingredients even, even further. But sometimes that wasn't far enough. So in a lot of families, there was selective starvation of adults meaning adults would choose not to eat in favor of letting their children eat. There were families that stayed in bed all day and reduced their meals to two meals a day so that everybody would conserve as much energy as possible and not get as hungry. They also relied on the kindness of friends and strangers. There were all kinds of kids who showed up at school not having eaten. 
and school teachers who are earning very little themselves getting absolutely frantic about this. Um, I interviewed a, a woman who'd been a teacher throughout the 1930s, and she said, I had these little children coming to school, falling asleep in class. They hadn't, been, they hadn't had anything to eat. And so she was someone who was really well-connected in town. She went around to all the women's clubs, because the women's clubs met about once a week. And she went around to them and said, please, give me your leftovers. So the women's clubs started giving her their leftovers, and she started distributing them at school so that kids had something to eat. She also noticed a bunch of those children had no clothes to wear to school. So when her brother died during the 1930s, they decided that instead of asking for flowers at the funeral, they would ask for overalls, overalls in children's sizes, so that she could then pass out overalls to her students who had no clothes. Teachers were a really important part of feeding and clothing kids throughout the 1930s. On the issue of clothing, what is she wearing? Does anybody know what she's wearing? Kate. She is wearing a flour sack. Flour, big bags of flour, you know, the 50 to 100 pound kind, and also feed sacks in the 1930s were made out of fabric. You did not want to waste fabric. And so this is like a, a white flour or feed sack, and what you would do is simply bleach out the name of the company. Um, Sometimes mothers didn't do a real good job, and I've seen stories about girls being horribly embarrassed by you know, things like premium you know, across the front of, of their dresses. Um, you could also buy flower sacks and feed sacks with pretty patterns on them. Companies realized that if they put a pretty pattern on their feed, that farm women would insist that their husbands buy that brand of feed. I know that my great-grandmother did that and made my great-grandfather move 100-pound bags of feed to get the patterns that she wanted. And so these are a couple of, of real, honest-to-goodness uh, feed sacks here. You could get instructions. Most farm women already knew how to do this, but other women learned and dressed their families. Um, you know, people saved everything they could in order to clothe themselves. Um, they housed themselves any way they could. Why was this called a Hooverville? Ben. Because Herbert Hoover was the president at the time, and he was not looked upon very well by the American populace after he refused to step in and do anything about the Depression. Okay, well, he, he did some things, but he did not do what people interpreted as enough. And so these shanty towns at the edge of major towns were called Hoovervilles, and that's where lots and lots of, of people lived when their families ran out of money. Um, whether it was food, whether it was clothing, whether it was shelter. There were a lot of people who were making do or doing without during the 1930s because they simply did not have the wherewithal to do otherwise. Now, one of the questions that we have is, how did the Depression change America's eating habits? There is, in fact, a recent book about how the Great Depression changed how America ate. And the answer is that the Great Depression was an era where cheap, nutritious food was in vogue, and that food generally lacked in taste. This food was not what we would call haute cuisine. It was really very, very bland. Um, one Great Depression recipe that I've seen that looks really, really horrible um, was that uh, there was a, a casserole recipe um, where you took spaghetti and you boiled the spaghetti for 20 minutes. Now, that's about twice as long as, as you really should boil spaghetti. So we're talking mushy spaghetti. Um, and you mixed it with boiled carrots, chopped up, and then put white sauce over the whole thing and baked it. I cannot imagine eating this. However, it was... Cheap, it was filling. All of you are making horrible faces. This is, this, is not, this is not great food, but it is food that will get you by. It was plain, it was starchy, it was filling. Um, there is also out there on the web a really wonderful site called Great Depression Meals with Clara. 
I think it's called Great Depression Meals with Clara. Um, Clara was an elderly Italian grandmother who lived through the Great Depression, whose grandson uh, was really interested in Great Depression cooking and the origins of the meals she cooked. And you can look at it and see some of her meals. Uh, one of her meals was called Poor Man's Meal. And the Poor Man's Meal was a fried potato to which the cook added a chopped up hot dog. And you fried it all up and you served it. Hot dogs were cheap, um, potatoes were cheap, and supposedly this tastes good. Um, I, I don't think it's, it's exactly my cup of tea. Some of you might like it. Uh, creamed chipped beef on toast. Okay, that's one that, that a number of your grandfathers would have eaten during World War II in the Army. They used a much nastier a much more colloquial name for it, which I will not use right now. Um, but you take white sauce, you mix into it um, chopped up chipped beef, which you, if you've ever had it, is really, really salty. But you mix it into the white sauce, you pour it over toast, and you call that a meal. Um, Hoover stew was the name given to all kinds of meals that... Uh, people ate during the 1930s. One recipe calls for a 16-ounce box of noodles, like macaroni and spaghetti. You cook that. To that, you add sliced hot dogs. And then you add two cans of stewed tomatoes, one can of stewed peas or corn, including the liquid, and then any other cheap vegetables that you might have, and you call it dinner. So this is, this is basically a, a, a mess plus hot dogs. Um, I've, also, I've also seen um, mashed potato things where you also cut up a bunch of hot dogs and sort of stick them into the mashed potatoes um, at attractive angles um, and, and make it look fancy. Um, a lot of Great Depression food is just simple. It is basic. Um, it, is, it is meant to fill you up. And so if you wonder why, even in the 1950s, Americans were still eating a lot of this stuff, it was comfort food that people had gotten used to during the 1930s. And to them, it still meant being full and being fed in the 1950s and later. I got fed a lot of this kind of stuff as a kid because my, my grandmother was feeding a young family during the 1930s and used a lot of recipes that were a lot like this. So my mother's memories meant that I ended up eating a lot of this stuff in, even into the 60s and 70s. Um, it's not cuisine. It's just plain old food. Now we get to the sad part. Um, well, we've already been doing a lot of the sad part. Um, but the question that people ask a lot of the time is, did anybody starve? And I decided, okay, I'm going I'm to be careful about this. I went into JSTOR, started looking for articles, looking for what historians had to say about this. And you know what? Nobody has really thoroughly tackled this subject. There are bits and pieces of information out there, um, enough bits and pieces that I think that we can come to some conclusions. But this is an area where historians just have not done enough work. Uh, president Hoover said late in his, his term as president, 1932 or so, uh, nobody actually is starving. But I think it's pretty clear that at least a few people were. In New York City in 1931, the health department recorded the deaths of 95 people by starvation. Um, there probably were more. Those are the ones who got recorded in one place in one year. The stories of extreme poverty in the 1930s abound. Um, and I, I don't think it takes a whole lot of time talking to older people before you start hearing stories that make you think that, yeah, maybe... A few more people did starve. Um, I've got a story that was my great-grandfather's story. Uh, he was a farmer. Farmers were making next to nothing in his part of Kansas because of the Dust Bowl, so he was working on a road project. And he and his friends, every day at lunch, would sit down and open up their, their meal pails and have their lunch in the middle of the day. But there was one man who wouldn't sit with them. And he kind of referred to him as the antisocial man. And every day at lunch, the antisocial man would go and sit by himself. And he didn't talk to people a whole lot. 
And so one day someone got close enough so he could look into his lunch pail and see what was in there. And it was potato peels. And they finally got the story out of him. And every day he was coming to work with a pail full of potato peels for lunch. He and his wife had decided that that was how they were going to manage. Their children and his wife needed the potatoes more. He would eat the peels and that somehow they would just keep going. But he was so embarrassed by this that he wouldn't sit with the other men. Uh, Once they knew this information, the other men started making him come and sit with them and presenting. Everybody took turns bringing him something for lunch every day. But, you know, the, the, the sad irony of all of this was that out of those potatoes, he was getting the vitamins, basically, and his kids were getting, you know, the starch. Um, and between, between the two of them, nobody was really getting a meal. But there are all kinds of stories like this about the Great Depression. Ben? Um, was it known that the potato peels had the, had the vitamins back then? No, it wasn't. So uh, he, was, he was doing what made sense to them. We now know. That, that the kids were missing out on all the vitamins or a lot of the vitamins. Um, they didn't know that then. They just knew that those kids needed more food. Now, in some communities, the hunger was really widespread. This was especially true in some communities of tenant farmers. We have a picture here of a tenant family from G's Bend, Alabama. Tenant farmers, at the best of times, limped along year to year because the landowner or the store owner would loan them money. And most tenant farmers, of course, had no land, and they were also deeply in debt because of this particular system. In G's Bend, Alabama, this was an African-American tenant community, and the store owner who had been lending them all of the money they survived on died in 1932. His widow immediately demanded payment of all of the farmers. They had no money. They had no land. They had no way to support themselves. They had no way to leave. They didn't have vehicles. They didn't have the money to get out. Eventually, the Red Cross figured out what was going on there and arrived with help. And by that point, the situation was dire. The regional Red Cross director said, you can't imagine the horror of it. Starvation was terrific. So the families in G's Band, Alabama, were in fact starving. Now, in areas where people owned their own land, things were not usually this dire. Farmers often were not making any money, but those pigs they couldn't send to market, they could eat. The garden, they could plant and eat. The corn, they could eat. But that wasn't true if the weather didn't cooperate. Here we have a picture uh, of dust bowl conditions in eastern Colorado in the 1930s. That's, that's a dirt storm. That's not a thunderstorm. That's a dirt storm. Um, much of the Great Plains experienced severe drought during the 1930s. Those droughts made their way into the Midwest in 1934 and 1936. And because of that, it was entirely possible to starve on a farm that you owned in a number of places in the 1930s. Because you can't grow if you don't have any water. Now, when you look at the cities, uh, things are somewhat different. Um, It was really pretty easy for adults to hide if they were hungry, but it was rather different with children. Children were supposed to be going to school. The schools kept track of physical conditions of children. They discovered in a lot of small towns the situation was particularly acute. In mining communities, particularly acute. There was the reappearance of rickets in a lot of communities. This little boy has rickets. It caused bowed bones because of a lack of vitamin D in your diet. The reappearance of of rickets, tuberculosis increased significantly. And there were some communities where 60% or more of the children were malnourished. Now, the people who were the most sick And the most malnourished often were not the people who started the Depression poor. They found that in families where there was just general unemployment, that 40% of the children, uh, or excuse me, that 40% of families where the wage earner was unemployed, people were ill. If, however, you add in the people who who had started out middle class and had become poor, 
you discover that 60% of those families were in poor health. People who had lost status, who had gone from being middle class to being poor, were often much sicker than those who had started the depression in poverty. And there was only speculation at the time about why that might have happened. But these formerly middle class families were families that had the least skills in dealing with poverty. They were not used to it. They didn't necessarily know how to scrimp and save. They were probably more resistant to asking for help, more embarrassed about being impoverished. And given what we know about stress and illness, they were probably highly stressed and therefore vulnerable to severe illness from hunger. Um, what probably happened more in the 1930s than people dying of starvation was people dying of illnesses they would not normally have gotten had they not been hungry. So what's the takeaway from all of this? Hunger was widespread. It was caused by joblessness rather than being caused by a sheer lack of food nationwide. And people who had previous experience with food innovation were better off than those without. So this is true. Grandma did survive the Great Depression because her supply chain was local. She was, she was growing food. She knew how to get by. And she knew how to do stuff. She knew how to feed herself. She knew how to innovate. And one of the things that we also know is that if she knew how to ask for help, she was going to be a whole lot better off than those people who did not. All right, let's end there, and we will continue with this on Friday. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. Are you looking for new reading material in 2022? Listen to the About Books podcast. On the latest episode, New York Times book review editor Pamela Paul talks about some of the New York Times' notable books of the year and her latest book, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. Find the About Books podcast and all of C-SPAN's podcasts wherever you listen.